Okay, before we get into the uh, subject at hand, I just want to I just want to comment that we should all show our appreciation to the uh, Guatemalan president and its large country. It's not a small matter. They had an embassy here in Yerushalayim up until 1980, and after the Knesset voted for a further law unifying Yerushalayim, there was a mass pullout of all remaining embassies. Many of them were Central American embassies. And until the United States uh, two days ago, we haven't had an embassy here in Yerushalayim. But um, there's going to be a slow return. It will begin as a trickle, and hopefully more and more countries will come on the bandwagon. Guatemala will be here already today. Honduras within the next uh, few days, and so on. Uh, this is not a small event, even though it's not going to have the major splash, the media splash that we had the other day with the United States Embassy. But there is something to be said about being the second. The second. The second you usually forget. Who is the second man on the moon? Of course, uh, I think it was Neil Armstrong. Why? Because Buzz Aldrin had to go down there and put up the camera. <laughs> but history has recorded Neil Armstrong as the first. And only, you know, people who uh, have a crazy connection to the space program remember who the second was. And forget about who was the third who was just orbiting the moon, you know. Man de Kharshmei, who remembers his name. But um, nevertheless, being number two is also significant because it actually shows that there's going to be continuity. The, um, this is not just a, a general comment, but it actually has halachic expression. Uh, this, uh, since Pesach... We've been engaged in the saying of Hallel in various forms. Uh, Pesach itself, in the first day, complete Hallel, the rest of the days, the partial Hallel. And then we had Yom Atzmut, then we had, I'm sorry, we had Rosh Chodesh Iyar two days, and then we had Yom Atzmut, and then we had Yom Yushalayim, then we had Rosh Chodesh Sivan yesterday, and we have Shavuot on Sunday. There are a lot of saying of Hallel's disproportionate amount in such a short amount of time. And... Uh, the uh, Rambam tells us in Hilchot Chanukah, the place that he talks about the laws of Hallel in general, he says there were various customs in Shul, how Hallel was said. And, and uh, many of them are not at all related to the way we say Hallel. But the one custom was that the, um, the Chazan said every Pasuk out loud. The, com- the community, the congregation, did not respond at all with any of the Pasukim. But rather, after each pasuk, they said one word, hallelujah. And now if you count up how many opportunities there were for the community to say hallelujah, responding to the chazan, comes out to a nice round number of 123. Very nice round number. And the Rambam tells us, it's based on the Yerushalmi, it corresponds to the age of Aaron Kohen. We know from Parshat Bo that Aaron Cohen was three years older than Moshe. He was 83, Moshe was 80. And we also know from later on in the Torah that both die in the same year. So if you do your math right, and Moshe Rabbeinu dies at 120, Aaron dies at 123. So what's so significant about that? Yeah. He was second. He was second, right. He was second in command, no doubt. But what's so important about that with regard to Halil? Mm-hmm. So the Rav explained that uh, based on a Mishnah, in Masechet uh, Sotah. So it says um, that the way of saying Hallel is Kikoreyeta Shirat, the way the Shiratayam, 
was said. How was the Shirat Hayam said? So what did everybody say the Shirah? It says, Az Yashir Moshe, Uvnei Yisrael, et Shirah Zod. So the explanation is that only Moshe Rabbeinu said each Pasuk. And the community, Am Yisrael, responded, Hashira Lashem Ki Go'o Ga'a, Sus Berachvo Ramavayam. Moshe Rabbeinu continues, Oziv Zimrat Yavayin Yeshua, Ze'ed Livan Ve'o Le'avivah Menu. And the community responds, Hashira Lashem Ki Go'o Ga'a, and that's how it went throughout. How did the community know that they're supposed to respond to Moshe? Who taught them that? Clearly the second in command, Aaron. He was the one who led the charge of the community in the response of the, response of the community to the uh, initiation of Halil by Moshe Rabbeinu. And hence, because Aaron was the, the one who led the way in the response, so according to this uh, minah, this custom, of, of responses of Hallelujah to the Psukim of the Chazin, it adds up to 123. We remember Aaron Kohen. So we re- even though we generally remember Moshe Rabbeinu in terms of the leader of the Shira, Azashir Moshe Tashirazot, Moshe Rabbeinu is named, he's certainly the leader, and the name Aaron is not even there. It's just, uh, it's just he's part of B'nai Israel, yet he's not just part of B'nai Israel, he's the number two man. And the number two man had a, had a position here. And when the number two man t- t- took action, then all of B'nai Israel followed suit. And that's why the number two is, is an important, important position. So, of course, you have a pioneer, but sometimes the one who comes right after the pioneer, who does not uh, have the glory and fame of the first one, nevertheless becomes the bridge to the continuation of all others. And that's really a life's message. And that's why I say that the Kalakavot to Guatemala, they're number two, and uh, they're going to kick in, to kick off many, many, many other countries coming to Yerushalayim. Um, I don't know what, how, how scientific uh, a discussion about cheesecake is, but uh, you could discuss it on, on a scientific level. Uh, for example, you know, the heat of the oven... Uh, and how long the batter is supposed to be in the oven to create the ideal uh, cheesecake. Uh, my wife has a minak from her grandmother, and this is all from Frankfurt. And if it's from Frankfurt, it's from Sinai. I mean, don't, <laughs> they, they, they never change anything. That the only time you're entitled to cheesecake is if you finish completing Svirata Omer. If you miss the day of Svirata Omer, they did not give you a piece of cheesecake on Shavuos. So that, right? Anybody heard of this? No. no? You've heard of it. Yeah. You do it, yeah? What? Wash the night. Wash the night. Say, wash the night. So, 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 so. There. It's, it's, a, it's a known Yekish Minik. And, um, and to a certain degree, there's certain, uh, I would even say it's Achzari. It's, it's like, you know, all right, so you missed the day of Svir Saimah, you know. According to Rambam, you can still count with the bracha. We, our custom is not to, but you still have some level of a mitzvah by continuing to count. But uh, to penalize you, I mean, this, this was a, a, an incentive that was as strong as could be. Because it was embarrassing if you didn't get your portion of cheesecake on Shavuos. And it's like, a, it's like almost a public uh, denunciation, shame on you type of thing. And uh, people really, really remembered before they had, you know, iPhones reminding them exactly at the time of Tzeta Kochavim, beep, 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 and uh, today the iPhone counts for you. You don't even have to count. You know, there's voice control and everything. You know, you just say Sphira and it tells you Ayom, you know, and it tells you, it 
tells you whatever it is. But uh, so, so there is something scientific about the discussion. But what I'd like to talk about is the custom, the minarch. Where, where exactly did it come from? You know, it's not the Alta Bubba, the great grandmother, didn't make up customs. Uh, we may be doing things because we saw it by our mothers and grandmothers, and today, thank God, we can say great grandmothers. Um, there are plenty out there today, which when we were young, there was no such thing as a hardly, hardly such a thing. I think somebody here told me, Rivka told me, you told me you had a great, somebody told me they had a great grandmother. Uh, no. Great grand, no, no. My mother became a great, great grandmother. A great, great grandmother. Before she died at 105. That's okay, that's rare. That, although, uh, rare, rare, I, I know some. Ca- I know at least 20 cases of that today already, of five generations. But four generations, if you come to my shul in Al Nahama, every Shabbos is a Mishaberach for Yoledet, and it's the great grandfather getting the Aliyah. It's, a, it's, it's a very, very common, uh, very common. My mother, thank God, she has 58 great grandchildren. It's a. Uh, it's a, you know, and and she, it's a small tribe. There are people who have large tribes, larger tribes of great grandchildren. So, um, where does this come from? The Rav Zechariah the Rav always taught us that um, these minhagim, these household popular minhagim, all have halachic basis. I mean, the famous one is cholent. Eating cholent on Shabbat goes back to the Middle Ages with the with the uh, intellectual battle with the Karaites as to the uh, pasuk. Uh, which halakhically translated and interpreted means you're not allowed to transfer fire on Shabbat. We're not allowed to create fire on Shabbat. You're not allowed to transfer fire. But if there was an existing fire, there are halakhically prescribed ways of using the heat from the fire in order to maintain warm food for Shabbos morning. We call it a plata, a blech, whatever you want to call it. There, there, there are different ways that the halakha allows us to maintain the heat, and you can have the fire on so long as it was, it was ignited before Shabbat. Karaites were against this. In order to show that we're right, so we would eat, the monsters would eat warm food Shabbos morning, because they wouldn't. They would have a dark house, and they would have a, it would be cold and everything. And, and that's why uh, Nerot Shabbat became exalted mitzvah by us, because the, the Karaites did not have this. I heard once from Rav Professor Daniel Shperva that the Ashkenazi custom of saying Bamem Adlikin in the before after Kabbalah Shabbat is was really a speech that the Rav or the Darshan gave Friday night. It was an anti-Karaite polemic, and he would always kick it off by talking about some aspect of the mitzvah of Nerot Shabbat, and then you know give it over the head. The um, and and just kept it stayed in the siddur because that's the way we are. Just very difficult to to you know purge from the siddur, but uh, but it had historic roots. So that's a type of minag that wasn't invented by the grandmother that it was a great delicacy to have Shabbos morning chilled. But the uh, same thing, the, the rough great-grandfather said the gefilte fish was there to, to, to alleviate a problem of borer, of separating the carp fish from the bones, uh, which might be a problem on Shabbat. There's a way to do it, obviously. People do eat carp fish, but, but the way to, to alleviate the problem is just to make it into, you know, kitzitzot, into to, uh, fish balls and so on. And, um, you know, today we try to take the bones out anyway, you know. But you remember uh, the fish uh, here in Israel 40 years ago? It was chunky, right? Because they used to grind the bones with everything. It was chunky. But they, no, 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 it's gotten a lot better. It's gotten a lot better, like everything else here. So, uh, but, but that, uh, the, the rough great-grandfather said, this was also a, 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 a culinary innovation um, by our great-grandmothers to alleviate a problem of halakha, of borer on Shabbat. And many, many of these um, uh, 
customs that have that are food related uh, somehow have basis in halacha in, in in all kinds of different customs and so on. And and here we have Chag Shavuot coming up, and there's the business of the not just necessarily the cheesecake, but the cheese eating a dairy eating dairy on the on Shavuot, and and really to make the subject uh, you know somewhat problematic. If you take a look at source number seven, just as a kickoff, we'll see why this is a problematic custom and how it's resolved. Yechavedat is the second edition of the responsa literature of Ravavad Yosef. And he writes, This is an appending pending, uh, to, uh, to the Shulchan Aruch where there's a um, uh, footnoting as almost uh, to the world of Shelot to Chuvot, responsive literature. Sha'af Sha'agat Aryeh. Let's talk about the Sha'agat Aryeh. Who's the Sha'agat Aryeh? Or known popularly in the Shiva world as the Shagas Aryeh. Sha'agat Aryeh, his name was Rabbi Yudha Leib Aryeh. Yudha Leib Aryeh, I don't even remember the family name. He was born in Metz, in the town of Metz, in Germany. Uh, it was an, a very, very sharp sharp Torah luminary approximately 300 years ago to the extent that his sefer became the litmus test to see if somebody's really a sharp Talmud Chacham really on the ball really very very incisive and so on that, that, that if, you, if you study the Shagas area you're, you're in the majors major leagues you're, you're, you're top uh, and having said that the Rav Zechon the of Salvechik once told my brother that when he was 10 years old he prepared Bar Mitzvah speeches for the boys who were 13, the town Chasalovich, based on the Shagas Aryeh that he already completed at age 10. All right, so just, just get an idea of who we're talking about when I mentioned the Rav. Um, that's why when I used to interview students at Chashmanoim, sixth grade is coming into seventh grade, so one of the interview questions I always gave them, can you tell me something about the Shagat Aryeh? And everyone would say, what? Ma? 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 Like, what are you talking about? I said, Tazo, forget it. You know, let's move on. And all I wanted to see if we have another of Yosef Dov Soloveitcha coming up the ranks. <laughs> oh yeah, finished it three years ago. Like, <laughs> nope, no such luck. <laughs> but uh, there was, uh, I remember when, uh, when Arya Derry was in jail, uh, I was going to say... Didn't they get the questions beforehand, before the admission? This was an oral exam. Oh, exam! I have a schmooze with kids, you know, just to get a little bit of a feel of who they are, what they are, and so on. The um, so when Ari Dari was in jail, so his friends, his chaverim, opened up a, a tent a yeshiva opposite the jail, Kelamasiyahu, and they called it Yeshivat Sha'agat Aryeh, which was okay, an interesting thing. So I remember the Shabbos afterwards, somebody in my shul in Ramot then saw on the shelves, on the swarm shelf, there was the Shagas Aryeh. The so he said, they, they put out a safe already. <laughs> that was fast. <laughs> so let's see what the Shagat Aryeh says. Back to source number seven. He says, Shagat Aryeh raised the point, You can eat whatever you feel like, whatever makes you happy. You know, you like fleshics? Fine. You don't like fleshics? You're a veggie? Fine, veggie. You want the dairy? Dairy. You know, whatever makes you happy, that's your Simchat Yom Tov. We'll see towards the end of the year, in the second page on source number nine, the Rambam talks about Ein Simcha Ele Babasar and Yayin in the second paragraph of source number nine. 
where he says, uh, what is Simchat Yom Tov? These are just external expressions of Simchat Yom Tov. You give them uh, some, some, some candy, some, some, some nuts, some, some puddings, and so on, some good things, sweets, sweets. Hanashim konelehem begadim betachshitim naim. I don't know where the Ramam got that from. Why women would be interested in jewelry and uh, nice clothing? Kefima mono, whatever is affordable in the family. Vanashim uchlim basar v'shotim yayin. She'ein simcha elu basar ve'ein simcha elu b'yayin. So the Shagat Aryeh says that's a general statement. But if you're not into wine and meat, but you like, uh, you know, chocolate milk and uh, and something else, so gesundheit. So that's your simchat yom tov. What, what's the problem here? That's very nice. The ain't so rich dafke bachilat basar. You don't have to eat meat if you don't feel like eating meat. And he's saying this as a general comment for simchat yom tov, not only for shavuot. Achagaon Rabbi Ben Chaim Matzanu Bal Devei Chaim. Who is the author of the Devei Chaim? He was the Rav of Sons. Rav Chaim Hal Bishtam, the Rav of Sons. Uh, I was once at his kever, and, uh, and he kicks off a whole dynasty of what became his son, the Shin of a Rebbe, his grandson, the Bob of a Rebbe, his great-grandson, the Klosenburger Rebbe. But they're all Hal Bishtams, and they're all descendants of, direct descendants of Rav Chaim Hal Bishtam. And I'll just say that the Rav Zechar Lebracha told me once that... Uh, that there were two Chaims in the 19th century t- worth talking about. So obviously one was his grandfather. That was pretty clear. That was a no-brainer, Rav Chaim Salavechik. But the Chidush was, I was, blew me away. He said, Rav Chaim Halbishtam. He thought that the Sansa Rav was just a luminary that was, you, you could not get closer, close to him in the world of Lithuania. You have to realize the Lithuanians, they, they were thought, thought of themselves as elitists. And they didn't have that high of an opinion of the Gedolei Israel in Galicia. And yet, uh, this opinion about the, the Hassan Zarov, who was Galiziana through and through, uh, that he, would, he marveled at the, uh, the Divrei Chaim. Um, Divrei Chaim had this uncle who was a right-hand man of the Klosenburger Rebbe, who came in Aliyah with the Rebbe in 1960. He was a well-to-do man. He built up a shul and everything. The main shul in, Klo- in Kiratsan is named after him. It's called... Uh, um, and so I remember visiting him when I was in the Gush since 1972 in the Yeshiva. So I spent uh, Shabbos there and I had his address. And he lived on Rechov Divrei Chaim number one, which made sense. The street was named after the Sefer. So I get to Kiryat Sanz and I see that this street is Divrei Chaim and the perpendicular street is Divrechayim, and every street there is Rehov Divrechayim. So how in the world are you supposed to find the address if all the streets are named after the Sefer? So I went over to a Chosid. I said, how is it? where's Divrechayim 1? This is Divrechayim. This is Divrechayim. She says, no, 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 no. This is Divrechayim Chaylik Aleph, and this is Divrechayim Chaylik Bais. You know, so volume 1, volume 2. Okay. So the Divrei Chaim, what does Rav Vadya say? Achagon Rav Enochayim Matzanu Bal Divrei Chaim Amar, the author of the Divrei Chaim, the sons of She'ein Divrei HaShagat Aryeh Muchrachim. He takes issue with the author of the Shagat Aryeh. He says, you know, it's not convincing. Not convincing what he said. El Tzarich Lechol B'Yom Tov Basar Behema Davka. You have to eat meat. In other words, he's saying, the sons of said, 
Chicken is no good for Simchat Yom Tov. Turkey is no good for Simchat Yom Tov. It's got to be meat, which is bakar batzon. It has to be, you know, either the beef or, 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 or lamb or something like that. It has to, has to be something that's defined halakhically as behemah. Kedei lekaye mitzvat Simchat Yom Tov. So, I mean, that's a pretty big chumrah. And not only is it a big chumrah, and uh, what's really startling about this comment of the Sanza Rav is that the Sanza Rav took issue with uh, another great Hasidic uh, leader of his time, um, uh, the Kar- Karlin, was it Karlin? I think it was Rabbi Aaron from Karlin, the, uh, one of the great, great uh, Hasidic masters, who there in the Karlina dynasty, uh, the, the talk was Malchut, Malchut, that the Rebbe represented majesty. And they actually believed that he was Mashiach. She used to think that the Lubavitchers have a monopoly on crowning their Rebbe Mashiach. So they believed that Rabaran Hagadol, that's how he's known as, Rabaran Kabbalin, that he was a Mashiach. And um, the Chassidim poured in a lot of money so that he should live in a mansion with marble pillars and so on. We have to realize the, the financial status or the economic status of the average Jew in Galicia in the 19th century was dire poverty. Dire poverty. And Reb Chaim Halbishtam, the Sansa Rav, was, uh, came out very strongly, vehemently, against this Hasidic group that felt that they have to give their last, you know, zlota to, so that the Rebbe should live in a palace where they didn't have any fo- money for food for their own families. And the Rebbe felt that the Rebbe's themselves had to live in austerity. And indeed, Reb Chaim Halbishtam lived in a very, very modest uh, type of existence, and, he's, and he brought a proof from Beit HaMikdash, by the way. He says that the, the Gemara tells us in Masechet Rosh Hashanah that when they started Bayit Sheni, Bayit Sheni was, was nothing to write home about. And that we already know from the Tanakh that in Sefer Haggai, when there were the youngsters who only knew uh, Babylonian exile, so they see Beit HaMikdash, so they were dancing. But there were some elders there who were like 80, 75, 80 years old who did remember the first Beit HaMikdash. And now they're looking at the second where they thought it was a cheap imitation and they were crying. So they needed some type of uh, uh, a pat in the back. Don't worry, the second one will be, will be as good as the first. Did I not shut this off? Will be as good as the first or greater than the first. The, um, the second Beit HaMikdash was, in Hebrew we say, aluv. It was very, very, not, not really representative of something that was granted. Great. But then the Gemara tells us, things got better. So the, so the first menorah in the Beit HaMikdash was made out of wood. So that was a cheap, cheap version of the menorah, made out of wood. Things got better, they installed a metallic menorah. Things got even better, they made a golden menorah. So the idea was that the Beit HaMikdash would reflect the economic stratus of the people and wouldn't go overboard. And the Rebbe of Sons had that opinion. And that's why he was so against the other Hasidim who thought that you had to pump in money so that the Rebbe should live in a palace because he represents Mashiach. And the same Rebbe Chaim Halbishtam, who was keenly aware of the fact that there was, there was no money out there for basic food, would give a halachic opinion to say that if you only were able to afford chicken on Yom Tov, you're not, fulfill, you're not fulfilling your mitzvah, Simchat Yom Tov. It's, it's absolutely amazing that, that there was such a thing. Um, I, I, I used it as an example, and I visit in Poland the town of my great-grandfather, Pilsno, that's not far from a city called Tarnov. 
So there was a Rav there. He was a son-in-law of my great-grandfather who became the, the Rav afterwards. And uh, he was asked a Shaila, and it's found on the, I found it on the Prayak Pashut in uh, Barilan. Uh, he was asked a Shaila about uh, a pair of tefillin where, you know, the, you have the parshiot, uh, from the, every time tefillin is mentioned, that's what you have there. So it said there, Bechozek Yad, Hotzianu Tzemi Mitzrayim. It's a pasuk at the end of Parshat Bo, Bechozek Yad. And the letter Chet in Ashkenazi writing is like writing two letters Zion with a bridge. And then there's another Zion, Bechozek, Chet Zion. So it's Chet Zion. And what happened was there was an extra drop of ink that apparently fell, and it created an impression of a double Chet. That's what it looked like. And the Shaila was asked to, uh, his name was Rabdovitzinga, and he passed it on to a great posseg in Lemberg. Um, for, for, uh, for the, there was a Rav Shvadron, whose name was uh, Sholem Dov Shvadron, for, for a psak. And um, every, every cipher in this country, every cipher, without a doubt, would tell you this parsha is pasul, and you have to have a new parsha. And the reason that they didn't say that the reason that they bent over backwards to try to justify that that parsha was not pasul is because for that family, you know what it meant to go and buy another parsha of tefillin? It could have been a week's worth of food for the family. How can you do that? So they realized that they had no other recourse but to bend and bend and stretch talacha to its maximum. They didn't say something that was pasul is now kasher, but they said that it's not as pasul as you think it is. You know, we, we, can, we can somehow use it. This was the, the, the attitude, and that was the attitude that the sons of Rav lived in also. So it is remarkable that with regard to Simchat Yom Tov, he's a hardliner on the meat. And he says, if it's turkey or chicken, you're not Yotze, you don't fulfill your obligation. So this whole, this whole idea stands in great contrast with the minag that on Shavuos we should be eating chalavi. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Let's rough cook. Right, so there were some Gedolim who were vegetarians, except for Shabbos and Yom Tov, by the way. I mean, they had rough cook. <laughs> what about Korban Pesach? I mean, my gosh, Rav Kook was a Kayan. So um, imagine if there'll be Beit HaMikdash. So I used to kibitz and say, he'll eat Korban Pesach from Tivol. You know, <laughs> but that's not going to work. Yeah. Right, the Rambam quotes it. Right, but the basa. But the question is, does chicken have a status of basa or not? And with regard to basa v'cholov, that's a machloket. That's a machloket. We adopt. We have adopted. The question is, which view have we adopted? There are three opinions as to the status of of of. We call in English fowl. F O W L. Um, chicken, turkey, duck, whatever you call bird, uh, kosher birds, uh, fowl. Um, there's an opinion that it's, it's like fish, it's parv. There's such an opinion in the Gemara <laughs> that cooking chicken and milk is a perfectly legitimate, you can eat it together, everything. There's an opinion like that. Rabbi Yosef Lili. Bim Komosha, Rabbi Yosef Lili, they will vashel sarof b'chalav. The second opinion is an in-between opinion that b'sarof is permissible biblically, but rabbinically is forbidden. That, uh, this is the opinion of most of the poskims, the view of Rabbi Akiva, and, uh, and therefore, it's not really ba- basar, but it looks like basar. So Chazal said it's off limits for basar v'cholov, and so on. And, and certainly that's how we treat it. The third opinion is most extreme and says that basar of is basar. It's no less basar than, uh, you know, beef. 
and therefore it's biblically forbidden. And the author of that is uh, the Tosfot and the um, Maharshal from Lublin. We talked about this also at the kever of the Maharshal from Lublin. That, um, and that's why in Ashkenazi homes, nobody feels the difference between this Fleshix and that Fleshix. It's Fleshix, right? If it's chicken, it's Fleshix, finished. And we've grown up and accustomed ourselves to that. And there's even a proof in the Chumash that it's Basar, because uh, B'nai Yisrael received Slav, and Slav was a bird. No question it was a bird. And Torah says, HaBasar Odenu Ben Shinehem, and the meat was still in its te- the teeth, and that's when God struck. So you see that uh, the Torah refers to the Slav, which is a type of oaf, as Basar. So it does have credibility. Uh, so maybe on that score, you know, we feel that if you eat chicken in Turkey, it is considered Basar. And then, and, and the uh, the author of the uh, uh, of of, of the, uh, the Sanzarov of the Divrei didn't really have to go that far and, say, and suggest that it has to be just uh, basar behema. But nevertheless, we have to understand this minarch of, of eating chalavis. Let's go back to source number one. Source number one tells us follows: This is a custom all over the place, all over the place. No, this is written in Chutzlaretz, so there are two days of Shavuot. In Eretz Yisrael, it's the only day, right? Venerally, Hatam, and what could be the reason? Shehu Kimo, well, let's, before we even read this, we grew up on some reason. What were we taught when we were in school or at home? Why do we eat the Chalavi on Shavuot? What's the reason that we heard? The Erev Chalavash is a drash already. Okay, no, but before we received the Torah, we received the Torah, and we started hearing, there's all kinds of halachot of basar, and we're not there yet. So, in order not to make a stumble, so many things go wrong before you put the meat in your mouth. So, let's just start off with Chalavi, it's less problematic. And we'll study the laws of uh, Shechita and Melicha and whatnot, and then we'll, we'll be able to eat meat. That's a very classic type of explanation. But we see Shulchan something radically different. Venerally, appears to me, Hatam, Shehu Kimo, Hashnei Tafshilin Shelochim Belel Pesach, Zechel Pesach, Zechel Chagiga. Why do we have a Zroa and Beitzah on the Seder plate? Or if we just use the Mishnah phrase, two cooked items where Rambam also has two cooked items of meat one to remind us that there was a Korban Pesach and one to remind us that on Erev Pesach there was another Korban called the Korban Chagiga the Ashkenazim substituted one of the Tavshilim for a hard-boiled egg now that could be because of economic reasons as well they didn't have another Zroa spare they didn't want to quote-unquote waste another piece of meat bad enough you had to put one on you don't want to say two, hard-boiled egg you know it's going to stay fresh till the next day it's not an issue, but also because hard-boiled egg was a siman of evel of avelut, and the whole reason that we're putting it on the seder plate is to remind us that there's no Beit HaMikdash and that we don't have the Korban Pesach we don't have the Korban Chagiga so the hard-boiled egg was thrown in there and uh, some Ashkenazim even have the custom to eat hard-boiled eggs in salt water at a certain point in the Seder as a simon of Evel, as mourning. 
Because the, the day in the calendar that Pesach comes out, so this year was Shabbat, so this year Tisha B'Av falls out on Shabbat. The fact is we fasted on Sunday, but the date Tisha B'Av is on Shabbat, it corresponds to the 15th of Nisan this year, which fell out on Shabbat. So the Shulchan Aruch says, just as we use two foods to symbolize something, to remember the Korban Pesach and the Korban Chagigah, Kain ochlim machal chalav, ve'achar kach machal basar, v'utzrichim l'havi imahem bet shnei lechem al ha'shulchan, shehu b'mkom ha'mizbeach. Ve'yesh b'zeh zichron l'shtei ha'lechem shayu makrivim b'yom ha'bikurim. We know from Parshat Emor, we just read it two, two weeks ago, that there was a special korban offered on Chag HaShavuot. It was known as the two breads, the shtei ha'lechem. And they were made from wheat, as opposed to uh, the Korban HaOmer that came from barley, and most something rather unusual, most of the grain offerings in Beit HaMikdash throughout the year were kosher Pesach, were not chametz. Ugot matzot kilo chametz, that's the way it was. Except there are just two notable exceptions. The most notable is Chag HaShavot. It says, chametz te'afena. These two breads have to be chametz. So how are we going to remember that there were two bread offerings at the Beit HaMikdash? where there's a concept of that our table, our Shabbos table, Yom Tov table, basically any time we eat, is there's a reference to the Mizbeach. It says, If three people are sitting around the table and discussing Torah as part of the meal, so it's as if they're sitting by the Mizbeach of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So there's, there's an uplifting experience we've taken eating, which is a gastronomical uh, uh, experience that's a, that, that every organism in the world you know, uh, has to engage in, and we've uplifted it to some type of spirituality levels. And, and, and therefore, what we want to do is remember that on Chag HaShavod, there was this special korban called the two breads, the Shtei Lechem. So you may argue and say, well, it's Yom Tov, there's Lechem Mishnah, it means there's Lechem Mishnah, there's always two breads. Yeah, well, of course, every Shabbos and every Yom Tov is Lecha Mishnah. That's not going to do as a, as a zikaron, as a remembrance. So we're going to have to do something else to remember. So what do we do? So Shulchan Aruch says, if we end up having two meals back to back, you're not going to mix the meals, but back to back. One is going to be milk, chalavi, and then afterwards will be bisari. And from chalavi to bisari, we don't really have a... a, a, a big problem of waiting time because many people don't wait at all, they just wash their mouth out and even those who do wait it's no more than a half an hour there's a chumrah, but nothing more than that so um, it's doable to have a meal that's really in two parts where there would be a washing and an eating and a benching and a washing and eating and a benching within the context of one large Simchat Yom Tov you will be obligated to have a second bread. Why? We will see in a few minutes. In Shulchan Aruch Yeridea, there was a whole discussion that you should, not, if you have a loaf of bread that you're using at a fleshic meal, don't use that loaf of bread afterwards for a milchik, for a halavi meal. Because some people, you know, they, they touch the bread with their hands, and the hands may have some meat fat on it, and it attaches itself to the bread and stays there, and then you take another slice and you can have it with cheese the next morning, and you're basically eating milk and meat. So, um, so there is such a takana, there is such a gzeira. By the way, it was said also with regard to salt, 
But I, I must stress that when the Shulchan Aruch says it about salt, it's talking about a little dish of salt. It says you should have one for milchiks and one for fleshiks. But today, I think that we have a, a shaker. I think it's different. I think it's, it's, very, it's not the same thing. Because if you happen to use, you know, I, I've gotten shyless already. People called me up, you, 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 sat down at a meal, and by accident, I used the wrong salt shaker. Lonora, the world is not going to collapse on a salt shaker. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a chalavi and bisari salt shaker because the custom was that there were always a dish of salt for a meat meal and a separate dish of salt for the, for the milk meal for this same reason that, you know, you put your hand in it, you take the food, you dip. By the way, this can work also, the same gzeira, nobody has ever said it, for, uh, and we use the word, linagev chumus, to swipe chumus. You know, people swipe, they swipe. That's the, way, the Israeli way of eating it. So, so sometimes, you know, it's left over, and, uh, you know, you want to put it out at another meal. Uh, whether, the question is, can you do it? Uh, if you use that, uh, that chumus uh, for the Shabbos morning, where there was fleshings on the table. Now, shishit, you know, hours later, you take it out from the refrigerator, and the question is, can you use the same chumus now for a fleshik meal, for a milchik meal, if you had it for fleshiks earlier in the day? These are questions. Yeah, yeah. Why do some people, when they make a moitzim, put the uh, salt on the table? You know, yeah, they the right. Because of the because of the age-old custom that it was dipped into the salt. So you see, if you have a shaker, you don't dip into the salt. You right, you shake it on too. But what I just explained now is that people didn't have salt shakers. They had a little plate with the salt on it. And that's the way the great-grandfather did it. So that's the way we're going to do it. So that's all it is. It's just to create a scenario that the salt is already there so that I'm dipping, dipping it in. Look, the, the, uh, when, the, when, the, when your kids ask the Manishtana, what are they talking about? That challah goes into the salt. That's what I mean. But tonight, it was a double dipping. You know, it's a... So that's why he's asking the question. But uh, the question of what's done throughout the year, there's no haroset, there's no salt water. So what is there? There's salt. There's salt. So it's, it's that the salt was on the table. So there are people who want to create that, you know, age-old scenario. It's not obligatory, but if your grandfather did it, it's a nice thing to continue. That's all. Yeah? Why do some people not use salt on Friday night? Not use what? Salt. Salt on Friday night? Yes. I've never heard of that. Yeah, we have we have guests. Yeah? And they, what, they don't use salt on what? On the challah? On the challah, yeah. They don't use that at all? Yeah. No. I heard some people don't do it on Shabbos Maybe, maybe their doctor told them that they should have a salt-free diet. I don't know. I never heard of it. Okay, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The mad the shomchan lomar eni yadeya. I never heard of it. That's all. Never heard of it. That's all. Okay, thank That doesn't mean it's not a. It's not there. You know, not the, not doubting you and so on. I'm just saying I never heard of it, so I can't explain something I never heard of. So here, what the, what the Shulchan Aruch is saying is because those who've studied already Yerodeah are familiar with the fact that you shouldn't use the same bread for a milchik meal and a fleshik meal, so if we're going to want to create a scenario of obligating us to have two breads so that we remember the carbon in Chag of the two breads, 
The only way to do this is to create a scenario where you're obliged to have two breads. And that is one meal is chalavi and the second meal is bisari. Because you're not going to use the same bread for the second meal that you used for the first one. The, well, Zell, so the question is, right, so there would be a need for lechem mishnah at both meals. That's correct. That's correct. Okay, let's look at the Mishnah Bura. This is the Chavetz Chaim now, in source number two. Machaleh Chalav. So first he quotes one of the great poskim called the Magen Avram, and it, who was also about the 17th century, I believe. Ayein Magen Avraham. Vani Shamati od b'shem gadol echad. Chavetz Chaim says, I heard from a great person who will remain anonymous. And this is really fascinating because what he's going to say now in the name of this great person whose name is anonymous is what we all grew up on. So apparently it was very, very popular except that nobody really knew whoever said it. Whoever said it. You know, sometimes you hear speakers uh, uh, and, and they want to quote something. They don't have a clue where it's from. So they say, Basfarim Akdoshim, and it's written in the holy books. Then you know right away the guy doesn't have a clue where it comes from. Shneit <laughs> Keshvivin, <laughs> right? In the Heiligus Forum. In the Heiligus Forum. You know, because if he knew where it's from, he would have said so, you know. So here, yeah, the Chavaz Chaim readily admits, I don't really know where this is from. So he said, I heard once from a great Gadol, Tam, Nachom Nazer, good reason. When we stood at Harsina, we kept the Torah, and then he says in brackets, through the receiving of the Aseret HaDibrot, we basically received uh, everything about Torah, as Rav Sadiq Gaon taught us, you have uh, alluded to in the Ten Commandments, basically all of the 613. Now, that's debatable. Is that what Rav Sadiqoin said? Did he say that everyone knew all the mitzvot afterwards? Or, in retrospect, you can now view the Ten Commandments as ten headlines of all of the 613 mitzvot. And that's something that's, that's doable. There's no question. You can definitely factor it, filter, you can definitely set up a, a chart of ten commandments, and then under each one, fill in the blanks of which of the 613 mitzvot, which belong here and which belong there. That's without a doubt doable. But did Rav Sajigon actually believe that Bnei Israel was aware on a practical level? That's something, we're not sure, but uh, Mishra takes it as a you know, face value. They came down from the, from the mountain, the Beitam, they came home. They realized that the only thing they're going to eat is milk, is chalavi. Why? For meat, you need a lot of preparation before you get that meat in your mouth. You have to slaughter the animal properly with an examined knife. That's Allah. You have to expunge, you have to take out the, the fats that are forbidden and the blood. You have to wash it and to salt the meat. My gosh, everything's strafe at home. <laughs> they just everything they ate the other day was strafe. So now they have to kasher all the kalim. Or they have to have kalim chadashim. Whatever they cooked within 24 hours, Nasrulahem became forbidden. Therefore, momentarily, at the moment, we chose to eat milchiks, 
And we do this to remember that great moment of Am Yisrael. Yeah, Rivka. When did they stop getting money? When the first day of Pesach, when Bnei Yisrael came into Eretz Yisrael. It's a Pesach and Sefer Yeshua. Right? Okay? We read it on the Aftari of the first day of Pesach. Right? So that's not an issue. That's not, that's not relevant here. The money. So... Um, they, were, they already had man. By Har Sinai, they had man. That man starts falling in Parashat B'Shalach. They had man. So this is a very good kasha. So the question is, what kind of meat and what kind of milk are we talking about if they didn't have food? Man started falling before Har Sinai. Before Har Sinai. That's clear in the Chumash. That's clear in the Chumash. So what meat and what, uh, what milk are we talking about? So the answer is that they were told that they could have meat to eat in the desert, in the Midbar, provided it was offered as a korban. It was the idea that we today can have meat that's not in the context of a korban, so it's called chulin, from the word chol, right? And there's a whole masechet on this, called masechet chulin. That's all about slaughtering animals that have nothing to do with Beit HaMikdash. The Torah tells us uh, in Parshat, in Sefet Varim, when you will be distant from the Makom HaShem, only when you enter into Eretz Yisrael, but you won't be in the confines of Yerushalayim for purposes of offering korban, and you have a desire for meat, so this now is being called halachically as basar ta'ava. You have meat of lust. You want to eat meat. So Torah says, So I'll tell you how to do it. The Torah says, I'll teach you how to do it. There'll be a mitzvah of shechita. Fine. But um, uh, this heter, this permissibility to eat meat, only kicked in in Eretz Yisrael. In the desert, if somebody wanted to eat meat, and he was allowed to have meat, it had to be brought as a korban shlomim in the mishkan. So, so there was a possibility of eating meat. And if they had behemoth with them, there's no doubt that they had flock with them going along. So these uh, animals were milked as well. So milk they had. So, you know, the idea that all we ate was man, um, you know, goes... You know, I was going to say, uh, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But uh, with, oh. Oh. <laughs> So they did have something. They, they did have something. It's clear. It's clear that they... And there was an issue. There was an issue of what to eat. And they opted for fleshics. They opted for milkings, rather. And because they have the Famulchiks, we want to remember that great moment. And also it was, a, it was an experience, it was a unique experience for Israel, and we wanted to copy it uh, annually on Chag HaShavuot. So the idea of having two breads, was, uh, was having two meals, was really to obligate us to have two breads, so that we should remember the Korban of the Shtei HaLechem. This is the, really what uh, comes out. But the Mishmur says there's this other reason that's floating around that's also very nechmad, it's very nechon, it's very true, and so on. And now in source 3, we have another reason. Chalab. This is the Magan of Ram that the Mishmur says, take a look at the Magan of Ram, but I'm going to tell you something else. So many times people study Shulchan Aruch and the Mishnah Brura, which is the Chavetz Chaim. So, okay, so he refers me to another source, but you don't bother looking it up. But, you know, when you're sitting at the computer, it's not a, big, not a big deal to open up the source, especially when the Mem Aleph, the Mugan of Ram, is in green ink on the computer, and all you got to do is click it. And it's just, you know, it's an Avera if you don't click into it. It's, it's like learning today is different than it used to be. It's really different because of the accessibility of sources. 
I, I am so lazy that I don't even get up from my computer chair to open up the Rambam to check something that I would normally do. I just type in which you know, section of the Rambam I want. And there it is, in a flash. It's on the screen. In any font I want, in any size I want, in any whatever. It's, it's, it's too much, right? Okay. The question is, how do you learn on Shabbat? You know, the Mechon Tzomet's going to have to come out with some type of a patent to use the computer. With, so I'll get the information eight seconds later, you know. It's all right, I've waited so long. So I can wait another eight seconds. Grama. Malgan Avram says in Source 3, Chalav, Yesh Harbei Ta'amim, there are a lot of different reasons. I just thought that tamim is flavors. Right, you get it with vanilla, you get it with chocolate, you know, you get all different flavors of milk. Yesh harbei tamim, different reasons. And then he says, mashikatuv hatam, that there is, I'm not sure that's the abbreviation, memkaf, hatam, the reason, the ita that's found in Sefer Azar. This is a Kabbalistic idea. That those seven weeks, otan shiva. Shiva Shavuot. There's seven weeks from Pesach until Chaga Shavuot in the Midbar. Hayuli Yisrael Shivat Nikiim. They were really like counting the way a woman would count seven days of Nikiim before going to Mikvah. Dugmat Isha Hamitaheret Minidata. The Adua, and it's known, this is something, you know, if we're talking about science, Dam Neekar Vinase Chalav says that um, in, in the mammals, how is milk uh, created? I'm not sure this is an absolute scientific truth that somehow passed down through a generation, that the animal's blood, and in the case of a human being, mother's milk, is a, is a function of something about her blood. Now, the only thing you can say is that, you know, dam brings the nutrition that creates the formation of, uh, of milk, and in mammals, and uh, and therefore there's this association between the dam nida of the woman and the chalav that we are going to eat on Chag Shavuot. Vahainu, what does that mean? Dam ne'ekar v'naset chalav. Din, blood is referred to as absolute justice because that's a symbol of, uh, of, of life and death. Life and death matters is dam. Be'dam ne'dam, it says. Vahainu midin, Milk, the, when you say milk, you always think of the picture of utter compassion, of the compassion of mother and infant, and that is a moment of compassion that, that's, that's in the psyche of humanity. So, so blood to milk is din to rachamim. Uminagavotenu torahi. Minagavam Aisol is considered like a, a Torah. And therefore, if we have such a minag, this is what we should be doing. Having chalav on Chag HaShavot. Achyeshli Zaher, we've got to be careful. Shelo yavoli de isur. You might stumble on some type of prohibition by this. And he says, and check, take a look at your Yeridayach Siman Peitet. And here there's a typo in the computer. The Aleph Lamed is really supposed to be Aleph Tzadik. The Ein Tzarich Lafsik the Birkat Amazon. And even this there are some who claim that a printer's error in, entered into the Mogad of Rome and it really said that Tzarich lafsik b'birkat amazon bet bet hey is benching im eino ochel gvina kasha v'yizahar likach mapa acheret. What does he say? He says, one second, let's just make sure we get this right. You're going to have a milchik meal and then you're going to have a fleshik meal. First of all, make sure you change the tablecloths. Right? You're reminding us 
that you know because it's yom tov and moving from one meal to the next that we may slip in terms of some of our normal things that we do. And he says that you better make sure that you formally end the meal with Birkat HaMazon. That's one version. V'tzarich lafsik b'Birkat HaMazon. And there's another version that says V'ein tzarich lafsik b'Birkat HaMazon. Will the right Mugan of Rome please stand up? Did he say you do have to or don't have to? What is the Birkat HaMazon all about? You see, we today... Uh, some of us wait six hours between meat and milk. Some of us wait a little bit less than six hours. Anybody wait more than six hours? So you're not familiar with the biggest chumrah in the book on this. It's 24 hours. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but nobody holds from it. Even in the Gemara's time, nobody holds from it. The Gemara says, the father of Ma'ukfa, he would, if he would eat meat today, let's say at two in the afternoon, he wouldn't have milk till tomorrow at two in the afternoon. He waited 24 hours. But he, the son, he says, we don't do that. We just wait from meal to meal. The problem is, we don't have a clue what that means. And that opened up the Pandora's box. I once taught the Chulin in the Yeshiva in Beersheva, in the Bnei Kiv Yeshiva, and I put on the board nine different uh, uh, options for, for the waiting time between meat and milk. Nine. And uh, the, the, the biggest cooler, the biggest lenient view is that there's actually no waiting time whatsoever. All you have to do is, between either bisari chalavi, chalavi, bisari, in both directions, all you have to do is wash out your mouth and formally end the meal with birkat amazon. And then you can go on to the next meal. Because it says between meal and meal. It doesn't say time-wise. So who, who, whose opinion was that? That was the opinion of the Balea Tosfot of the 12th century, Rashi's grandson, Rabbeinu Tam. And as uh, my grandfather would say, you know, Elke can't learn, and he also knew how to learn a little bit, Rabbeinu Tam. And he was the leading Paisik of Ashkenaz, and, and that was a major, major, major view until the 13th century, when in the 13th century the Zohar appears on the scene, without getting into the whole discussion, who wrote the Zohar, when was it known? The Zohar is never quoted before the 13th century. That's a fact. And in the Zohar, in Parshat Mishpatim, it, where it says, Lo Tepashel Gidi Bachalei the whole idea of Basav Cholav, it, it tells us that, um, that you should wait an hour between Milchiks and Fleishiks, and between Fleishiks and Milchiks an hour. That's where this hour comes from. And that's already a Chumrah from Rabbeinu Tam of not waiting any time, but just formally f- uh, separating it with Birkat Amazon, with Benjing. So Ashkenaz upgrades, upgrades to an hour upgrades to an hour. And that view becomes dominant for 400 years until the 16th century. The Ramah, Ramah Islis, knows about it. He writes that in our circles we wait one hour. Our circles, not Holland, Poland, Galicia, Krakow. But he recommends six hours. While at the same time, the Svaradim in Spain and North Africa are all waiting six hours already. For years, for centuries, are waiting six hours. In the 16th century... Eastern European Jewry upgrades to six hours in a slow process because the Ramah's granddaughter marries the Shach, Rabbi Shabtai Cohen, and he is still pushing. You see, it's still pushing. Anybody who has Reach Torah, you have Torah fragments, you should keep the six hours. You see, they're still plugging away that people should be Machmer on the six hours. It's two generations after the Ramah. Finally, it makes it. Where? In Poland, Hungary, and Russia. Eastern Europe, it makes it. But what happened... When this Chumrah starts migrating west to Germany, so the German Jewish community are holding the line because we keep one hour. 
But eventually, there was what Rabbi Sperver calls the tornado effect. It clashes. And when the dust settled, a compromise arose. And the compromise between the one and six was, in Hamburg they waited four, and in Frankfurt they waited three, and then survival of the fittest, there was more of three hour than four hour, three hour became the minag of German-Jewish community, which then becomes exported to England and the United States and Canada and Australia. One second. The tornado never made it to Amsterdam. Never made it there. And therefore, they kept one hour. It's not that they were loose or, or less religious or less spiritual or anything like that. They kept maintained the one hour that was invoked since the, main, uh, the 13th century. And I remember I had a student in Medreshet Moria, a nice young lady from Chutzlaretz, who told me she doesn't care who she marries as long as he's Dutch. You know? <laughs> and go to the one hour view. So that uh, as it still exists until this very day. And today in Eretz Yisrael, we don't have a minhag Eretz Yisrael on this because everybody came in Aliyah with their minhag in their suitcases, and that's what they do. But uh, with time, things may gel here too. Bakasha. So if I keep one hour, I'm going according to Allah? Of course. So I don't have to wait six hours? If that's what you were brought up on, if that's what you were brought up on, and I can tell you that, let's say somebody's a convert, somebody's a convert doesn't necessarily have to pick the most extreme Humrah, can take the most extreme Kula, because that person doesn't have a, a, a family tradition. Whatever you pick, if it's, if it's a Shita, if it's a view, it's okay. The Orach HaShulchan, Rabbi Yechil Mechalalevi Epstein from the Vardok, 19th century, writes that if a person is in a situation where there's a health-mitigating re- reason, a person has digestional issues, let's say some people who have uh, stomach ulcers, uh, ulcerated li- linings in the stomach, and the doctor says you should have milk, and you, know, you may have eaten mi- meat and then you feel you know, pain, so you don't have to wait six hours. He says in those cases you rely on the one-hour view. And same thing with little kids. I mean, I, I think it's horrific when I've seen this already, by the way. You have a three-year-old kid crying, you know, for an ice cream because everybody else in the family is eating ice cream, but the kid is penalized because he had, you know, Gerber's uh, meat, you know, four hours ago, and he has to wait two more hours for his ice cream. I, I think it's outrageous. And that's exactly what the Orach HaShulchan said. You know, use your noodles here and, uh, and, and without the cheese. And, 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 right. and, 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 and understand that for a little child, the one hour shita is also chinuch. That's also chinuch. And you don't have to torture a kid uh, on something like this. So you have uh, the interchange of this, this custom. Now, just one last thought, and that is that this halacha that I mentioned earlier, that we don't bake things. Um, we don't eat, um, use the same bread for a milk meal, a flesh meal. Our Chachamim said we shouldn't even use milk as an ingredient in the bread product, the baked product. So there were some exceptions to this rule. One is if it's a different shape. You ever notice that the milchik brekases are different, are triangles as opposed to the other brekas? It's for that reason. And, and why we bake challah in a different way than we normally bake bread? Because challah used to, they used to use meat fat, by the way, and make it demonstratively fleshic. 
It used to be fleshek, yeah. And, and, and the reason that they baked it in such a way that it wouldn't look like the ordinary everyday bread so that you should not make a mistake about it at all and mix it up and eat it you know, with a milk meal. So these things were done. And so too, the Shulchan Aruch later, the Ramah tells us, we bake certain things with milk for shvuas because it's very limited baking. It's just for you know, one meal only. It's confined and we can allow it to happen. And then comes the whole question about waiting time. Is there an, a, a, a leniency that has kicked in on Shavuos with regard to waiting time between milk and meat? There were some poskim who did have such leniencies, and the claim was that at the day of Matan Torah, we're all super-duper careful, so nothing's going to go wrong. Let's remember that the waiting time is a rabbinic issue so that we don't mix up with you know, a cooked product of milk and meat. But on Shavuot, where everybody is so connected to the world of Torah, that wouldn't happen. There was such an assurance that that wouldn't happen. While other poskim weren't so um, comfortable with this, putting it mildly, and they said, no, 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 no. What we don't do throughout the year, we don't do on Shavuot either, and, let, and it becomes a type of no exception clause that kicks in, and therefore the waiting time, it would be the same. I mean, I'll give you an example. There were some poskim who claimed that if you ate meat, let's say at, the, at the 5 in the afternoon on a particular day, and then sundown is at 7 in the afternoon, so at 7.30 you can already have milk. Any day through the year, that that's considered already a different day, even though you don't have six hours. What you now have is a two different time zones. You have a date, and now you have a new date. So we don't paskin like that throughout the year. Nobody does that at all. But there were great poskim, including the Rab Chaim Halbishtam from Sons, who said that if you had, let's say, meat before Shavuos, if you had meat, uh, let's say, uh, uh, on Shavuos itself, let's say, towards the end of the day, on Yom Tov, at a certain hour, let's say at 5 in the evening, and now it's Matzi Yom Tov, it's Sunday night, it's coming Sunday night, an hour after Havdola, which might be two and a half hours after you've eaten your meat meal, you're already allowed to have milk. The same Reb Chaim Halbishtan believed that that would be the case, that for Shavuos we entertain leniencies and we would allow this to happen. I'm just mentioning this to you in theory only because the rank and file poiskim of the 19th and 20th century dismissed this categorically and they said, don't do it, don't do it because um, it's going to lead to confusion, it's going to lead to mistakes later on down the road. People are going to say, yeah, 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 but I saw my grandmother did this once on Shavuos, yeah. And they won't know that all this has to do with, uh, you know, the you know, just this unique day of Yom Tov. And just as a last thought, and going back to the second page on the bottom, where the Ramam tells us about Simchat Yom Tov, and he tells us there are seven days, they're all the days that we have the Allah of Simchat Yom Tov, but in the middle of that last paragraph, I'm going to read from uh, the se- end of the second line, where in Allah Yud Chet, the end of the second line, and when you eat and drink on Yom Tov, you must take into consideration that there are those out there who don't have who are less fortunate than you are. La ger, to the convert, la yatom, the, uh, the, the orphans, la almana, the widow, usha'ar ha'aniyim e'umlalim, for other destitute people. Mishin no'el daltot chatziro, somebody who locks the door of his, of his, of his yard. Ochel v'shoteh, hu v'anav he and his wife and kids, they all eat and marry. 
ve'eno machil mashked al yimel marei nefesh. Do not consider those who are in unfortunate situations. Ein zu simcha mitzvah. This is not considered simcha mitzvah. Ela simcha kreiso. It's gastronomical simcha. And this is not the simcha that the Torah wanted. The simcha that the Torah wanted was that when a person um, opens up the doors and makes sure that everybody is included and so that Am Yisrael could be Sameach together. This is a country where in one week everybody is Sameach. So many things have happened already this week. And Mirz um, Hashem, we're going to move on to Chag Shavuot, And it should be a real Simchat Zman Matan Torateinu for all of us. And uh, we should enjoy days of shalom and weeks of shalom and months of shalom and years of shalom. And hopefully it will be a great moment for Am Yisrael. Thank you.